Good morning. I hope you all remembered to set your clocks back one hour last night. I think what that means is that I get an extra hour to preach. Is that right? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you or in front of you, to John chapter 3. And as we come to God's Word this morning, we turn to one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, John 3.16, and we'll continue through to verse 21. And in these verses, Jesus summarizes for us the entire message of the gospel, why he came, what he came to accomplish, what this means for those who receive it, and what this means for those who reject it. So as we turn to a familiar portion of scripture this morning, I don't want to make any assumptions as I preach this text. Because maybe you've heard this before, this message of the gospel, and if that's true, then praise God. And good news, you get to hear it again. But maybe you're here this morning and you haven't heard the message of the gospel before. Or it's been obscured for you or polluted for you. Maybe you've seen it or heard it, the message of the gospel, weaponized or politicized or perverted by abuse or false teaching. Whatever your exposure to the gospel has been, or on the other hand, whatever your lack of exposure to the gospel has been, the Holy Spirit speaks to all of us this morning through God's word. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning through this text, and he's saying to all of us, listen up. This is the message of the gospel, and we hear it from Jesus himself. And the first thing we hear of is God's action. Just in the first half of verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I'd like to point out very briefly three key elements early on of God's action here. And the first is his initiative. His initiative. We see this in just these first two words alone of this verse. If you've got it open or if you know this verse, just say the first two words with me. Ready? For God. He is the source. He is the fountain of the gospel. He, God the Father, looks upon a lost world, meaning he looks upon your lost soul and initiates salvation. Salvation originates in him, not in you. Praise God. Salvation is centered in him, not in you. Salvation is begun by God, not begun by you. The gospel is God's initiative. We see that here. Second, we see his love. For God so loved the world. 
It was God's love that moved God to save. Not that God so despised evil, though God does despise evil. Not that God's holiness demanded vengeance upon evil, though that's true. God's holiness does demand vengeance upon evil. But the root here, the the impetus for God's salvation of the world is his love. It's his love. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78, Zechariah says, salvation will come to us in Christ. Hear this, quote, because of the tender mercy of our God. So it's his initiative. It's God's initiative. It's because of his love. And this is his great gift. For God so loved the world. What did he do? That he gave. He gave his only son. The central message of the gospel is not something that God requires from you. It is someone that God gives to you. The central message of the gospel is not an action that God is waiting to see happen within you. The central message of the gospel is an action that God the Father takes for you. New Testament scholar John Marsh in his great succinct commentary on the gospel of John put it this way. He writes, the magnitude of the love is matched by the magnitude of the gift. He writes, God loved all there was and he gave all he had. Isn't that beautiful? What's so amazing about that and what's so, so beautiful about that is that the magnitude of the gift of God and the love of God is not only true on a global level, though it is. Jesus says that. He, he loves the whole world. So it's true on a global level, but it's also true on a personal level. The magnitude of the love of God, which is shown in the giving of the Son of God, is true for you individually on a personal level. It's amazing. And here's what I hope this helps you see this morning. Just get this. God's great gift of his own son is proof of his love for you, not the cause of his love for you. You catch that? The gift of his own son is the proof of his love, not the cause of his love for you. I could say that because it's clear in the order of this verse. Track with me. What comes first? The initiative of God. What prompts that initiative? The love of God. So then, what is the result of this loving initiative of God? The gift of the Son of God. Jesus is a gift resulting from the love of God, not a gift that results in the love of God. 
In his book, amazing book, The Cross of Christ, the late Anglican priest, John Stott, wrote this. And I hope this rocks your world like it rocks mine. He writes, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. Some little voice in your head right now might be saying, that's not true. So I want to speak to that little voice in your head right now. Tell him to listen up. Jesus is the proof that this is true. He's the proof that God loves you, not the reason God loves you. So the first half of verse 16 shows us God's action, and now the second half shows us the why of God's purpose. Here are some reasons why. Why God gave his only son. First, so that we would believe. For God gave his only son that whoever believes. Whoever. What a great word. Some translations you might be used to. Whosoever. Whoever believes. Jesus came to draw all people and all kinds of people in all kinds of conditions from all kinds of backgrounds to himself. He came for Jews and Gentiles. He came for rich and poor. He came for all races, all nations. He told Zacchaeus in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save the lost, not the put-together Not the already holy, not those people who had gotten their lives cleaned up first. Jesus' purpose was then, is now, and will be until he returns to seek and save the lost. And he seeks after the lost. Here's the second reason why he came. So that whoever believes in him should not perish. Belief in Jesus saves us from two kinds of death. First, death that he saves us from is a spiritual death. And the second kind of death that Jesus saves us from is is a real physical death. There is no other way besides belief in Jesus to defeat these two deaths. But... Jesus' purpose is not only to save you from death, that you should just simply not perish, but here's a third reason. He also came to save us so that we would live forever. The message of the gospel is not only what Jesus came to save us from, but it's also, praise God, what he came to save us for. He came to save us from, yes, but he also came to save us for that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's not a period there. It keeps going. But have everlasting life, eternal life. In 2021, Tim Keller wrote a book called On Death. And in that book, he told the story of a young man he had known whose wife had died of cancer leaving him, the father, with four children below the age of 12. And Keller wrote this. 
One day the man was driving with his children to the funeral, and a large truck pulled past them in the left lane, casting its shadow over them. The man asked his kids, would you rather be run over by the truck or the shadow of the truck? The 11-year-old answered, the shadow, of course. The father concluded, well, that's what has happened to your mother. Only the shadow of death has passed over her because death itself ran over Jesus. So hear this today for the hundredth time, or hear this for the first time. Believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Only the shadow of death needs to pass over you because the truck of death ran over Jesus. So in this one verse, <laughs> we see all of this, God's action and God's purpose, and it's all revealed not in an idea, not in a philosophy, but in a person, a real flesh and bone person, Jesus. Now, uh, verses 17 through 18, we move on, and we read all about God's salvation, all about God's salvation here. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So there are two truths here that we need to understand so that we can understand the message of the gospel. And the first truth is that Jesus came, our text teaches us, into an already condemned world. Verse 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, that's because he didn't have to. The world was already under condemnation and it was self-inflicted. And I say that because of verse 18. Jesus says, whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Those might be two of the most terrifying words in all the Bible. Condemned already. This is offensive to us. This is hard for us to hear. We don't like to think about this. Maybe sometimes that's part of the problem. Maybe sometimes it's why we don't quite get the gospel, because we don't quite understand the problem. And the problem, the stark problem that our text presents to us is that outside of belief in Christ, outside of salvation in Christ, we stand condemned. Listen to how the early church father, John Chrysostom, explained this idea of an already condemned world. He said, even if a murderer is not yet sentenced by the judge, 
Still his crime has already condemned him. In the same way, he who does not believe is dead already. Even as Adam, on the day he ate of the tree, died. It's the first truth that Jesus came into an already condemned world. The second truth, though, is he came not to offer a final sentence, but to save, to save from condemnation, offer salvation from our self-inflicted condemnation. Jesus steps onto the human stage, and he inserts himself into the human story. And on a personal level, Jesus inserts himself into your story and into my story. And here's where Jesus places himself. Here's how Jesus positions himself in the human story, in redemptive history. Jesus inserts himself between, on this side, the condemnation that you and I have brought upon ourselves by our unbelief, our sinful nature, and on this side, the sentence of punishment that God's holiness rightfully demands upon this rebellion and sin and unbelief. And so Jesus positions himself here between our condemnation on the one hand and God's justifiable sentence on the other. And right here, Jesus stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death, we might be saved, but not to appease God, but out of the loving initiative of God. In his commentary on these verses, Matthew Henry wrote, if the Lord had been pleased to kill us, he would not have sent his son amongst us. He came with full powers indeed to execute judgment, but did not begin with a judgment of condemnation. Instead, I love this, he puts us upon a new trial before a throne of grace. Hmm. Think about that. That's what Jesus represents for you. That's what Jesus represents for each person in this room. Represents a new trial for you. Because outside of Christ, you're guilty. You're headed for a sentence of death. But God, but Jesus puts you on a new trial before a throne of grace. And in that trial, he takes your guilt. He takes your sentence. He gives you a full pardon, a complete pardon, a forever pardon. And he lavishes you with grace that you can never imagine. Jesus shows us already in our text. I'll recap for a minute. God's action, what he did, God's purpose, why God did it, and God's salvation. Now, Jesus invites us to consider our response. Our response. And the first possible response is rejection, which means life forever apart from Christ. 
verses 19 through 20. As I read these verses to help us understand what Jesus is saying, I'll insert his name, Jesus, in place of the two words, the light. Because the Gospel of John has taught us that the light is not an idea or a philosophy or just a thing. The light is a person, Jesus. And this is the judgment. Jesus has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than Jesus because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates Jesus and does not come to Jesus lest his works should be exposed. Jesus doesn't mince words about this. He says that rejection of the light, rejection of Jesus is hatred of Jesus and a love of darkness. And this is the judgment. Jesus gives them over to it. Our text, uh, scripture teaches God's great universal love, but not God's universal salvation. There are those who reject Christ and reject Christ's salvation. And when they persist in this rejection, their hearts become hard, and then they persist in hating Christ, and their hearts become harder, and this becomes what Jesus calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this leads to eternal separation from God, eternal condemnation. It's terrible. It's awful. And we ask, why? At least I know I ask why. I'm sure you do too. Why? Why do some believe and others don't believe? Why do some people love Jesus and other people hate Jesus? Why? These are good questions. I think these questions qualify as what Jesus called heavenly things. Last week, speaking to Nicodemus, these are heavenly things. Scripture does teach about these heavenly things. I think Scripture is clear about these things, but surprise, Christians disagree about these heavenly things, and that's okay. So for now, for today, for right this moment, let's focus on the text in front of us and what Jesus is clearly saying right here, which is this, to reject Jesus is to reject eternal life. And this ought to compel us to run after Jesus and to run after the lost. Hear the heart of Paul here in Romans 9, verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's a heart for the lost. I want to take their punishment for them. One commentary I read on that verse said, that's a, what we see right there in Paul is a spark from the flame of the self 
substitutionary love of Christ. I wish I could take their place. So if you detect, which I hope you do, an urgency in my preaching, or if you detect an urgency here at Truro to preach Christ clearly, that's because there is an urgency. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. So run to him and run after the lost. These words I'm about to read from Charles Spurgeon always stop me in my tracks. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. God, help us if we ever become the frozen chosen. God, give us a heart for the lost, a heart like Spurgeon's, a heart like Paul's, a heart like Jesus. Point them to Jesus. So to borrow an image from last week, so that all who are dying from the bite of the serpent will look to Jesus and look and live. And that's the other response. The invitation of our Lord Jesus, an invitation to belief, which means life forever in Christ. Verse 21, Jesus says, whoever does what is true comes to the light, comes to Jesus, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why does Jesus pivot here at the end from this hard teaching about those who remain under judgment by their rejection of Christ, now to this teaching here at the end of this section uh, about someone's works being carried out in God. Jesus is saying that that gospel that originates in God and that salvation that is achieved for you by God doesn't just impact you at the moment of your death. This gospel, this salvation impacts you the moment of your conversion. He's saying for those who are in Christ, for you, for me, for anyone who is in Christ, our eternal life is not waiting for us someday. Our eternal life has already begun now. Think about it. You, believer, are right now living an eternal life in Christ. And Jesus says, you owe it all to God. You owe it all to God. All these different points on the timeline of your life, your conception, your birth, your life, your salvation, your conversion, all of your works, your bodily death, your immediate entrance into heaven, your bodily resurrection, your life forever in glory. Jesus is saying all of it from top to bottom is carried out in God. It's on the same timeline, a timeline that is in Christ. Here is Christ, here is your timeline, and it's an eternal timeline. The other timeline is outside of Christ, 
and it has no attachment to Christ. Jesus is saying to the believer, your life now is an eternal life in Christ. And he's saying to the unbeliever, believe in Christ so that all may see that everything about you is carried out in God. Not just someday upon your death, but now, today. I was thinking this past week of the time I was raising money for a high school mission trip I was gonna go on to Honduras. And an elderly lady at my church offered to pay me to build a little brick path from the end of her driveway to the sidewalk outside of her kitchen. Now, if you know me at all, you would know that I should never agree to build anything with my hands for any reason, for anyone, at any time, especially for any amount of money. <laughs> but she was offering good money. So <laughs> I spent a whole day over there. She had all the supplies ready for me, shovels, wheelbarrow, bricks, bunch of other stuff that I don't even know what it is. It's just stuff that looks impressive. And all I did was make a complete mess of her yard. Pretended like I knew what I was doing. I destroyed the poor woman's yard. I came back the next day to try again. And I got into her driveway and I looked and I saw something incredible. I couldn't quite believe it. The brick pathway had been completed. And it was perfect, it's beautiful, level. The housekeeper for this woman had come and seen the destruction that I had wrought upon this woman's uh, yard and did the job for me. The woman, the housekeeper, got all the credit. She did the job that I could not do. All I could contribute to the job was my complete inability to contribute to the job. And yet, miracle, I got paid. <laughs> I received the benefit. Listen, all you can contribute to your salvation is your complete inability to achieve your salvation. Jesus does the job for you, and it's beautiful and perfect and level, and miracle of miracles, you get paid. You receive the benefit in Christ for the job of Christ. It was Augustine who said, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. And that's true. And that message of the gospel is summarized for us in these verses. But if you doubt it, good news is that message is revealed to us in Jesus. So I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. 
So as a minister of the word of God, I implore you to believe. Receive all the blessings of Christ. Receive eternal life that the shadow of death would pass over you and that you would live forever in Christ. And if you've not believed and you're here, I wanna say to you on behalf of this church, we're gonna wrap our arms around your knees as long as we can because Jesus has wrapped his arms around us. Amen? Let's pray. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Why should we gain from his reward? We cannot give an answer. But this we know, with all our hearts, his wounds have paid our ransom. We give you thanks and praise, O Father, for the great gift of love of your Son. Help us to believe. We ask in his name. Amen.